Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. I just finished speaking with Norman Olher about his new book, Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich. This book was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2017. Olher shows how the Nazi elite embraced methamphetamine as a wonder drug, free of the connotations of the disease and degeneracy associated with the drug culture of the Weimar years. Stimulants became a valuable tool in Germany's wartime arsenal, the German military acknowledged the value of amphetamines and distributed pervitin en masse. Olher argues amphetamines allowed the Wehrmacht to defeat the Allies in France and elsewhere during the Blitzkrieg years of 1939 to 1941. These gains were short-lived, however, as Nazi Germany's Faustian bargain with drugs eroded away during the Battle of Stalingrad and in the distant steppes of the Soviet Union. Research for ever more powerful drug combinations were desperately sought to save the Reich from annihilation, exposing the horrors of the regime from experiments on concentration camp prisoners to drug child soldiers. Blitz details how Hitler's personal physician, Dr. Theo Morell, administered vitamin concoctions and hormone injections common to athletic doping. Although Hitler had promised to cleanse the nation of illness and drug abuse, he himself became utterly dependent on drugs to survive. Military defeat and destruction took their toll on Nazism embodied, and Morell increasingly looked towards methamphetamine and oxycodone to keep Hitler awake and alert during the last apocalyptic years of the Reich. It was a pleasure to talk to Norman, and I hope you enjoy the show. Norman, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to speak to you. Okay, so um, as is sort of typical with new books, um, I want to ask you, how did you become or decide to become a historian, and and uh, why why drugs in the Third Reich of of all uh, subjects to focus on? Well, it was rather a coincidence because I'm a born and bred and passionate novelist, so I tend to invent things um, and 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 make them credible. Uh, but this time, uh, a friend of mine told me about the uh, drug abuse in Nazi Germany, and he was a uh, he is a history buff and also a drug buff he's a he's a dj in a berlin uh, underground club so i i took his his word kind of seriously and uh, or at least um it was a good idea to write my next novel about um about the drug scene in nazi germany and uh, but when i started researching i found out that uh it, uh that the subject would be dealt better with in a non-fiction book so I kind of uh, started this journey as uh, uh, this journey of writing a a historical uh, nonfiction book. Cool, interesting. Um, yeah, you mentioned that at the end of the book on how you uh, came up with that idea. That's yeah, no, that's fascinating. What do you think? Um, do you think your work as a novelist has affected the book in, in how you constructed it in any way, or do you think that that you approached it, you know, kind of more? Um, as as like a nonfiction piece because the book is amazing in the fact that it is it's written for uh 
like a wide audience. It's not sort of a typical academic monograph, but it has these sort of uh, bits and pieces that you would find in, you know, in any any high-level academic history book. Well, my attempt was to um, research in an academic way or, or um, write an academic book, but use a style that would that would please me and would please my audience so i i i probably took the 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 ability my 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 novelist ability in regards to my writing style uh in order to make this book um readable to as many people as possible because in fact when i decided to go on this journey to write a non-fiction historical book i started reading a couple of quite successful um historical books and uh, by German authors, but also by, by an English author, and I found them extremely hard to read. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say boring, but because it's not boring, but certainly hard to read, uh, harder to read than I imagined. And um, I thought it does not necessarily have to be the case. Um, in regards to structure, however, I worked very closely with the German historian Hans Mommsen, um, who advised me on how to build um, the certain parts uh, of the book? Uh, it has four large parts, and um, so I, I think when it came to structuring, I, I was I was um, I was very much influenced by how a historical um, nonfiction book sh- uh, should be structured. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was incredibly successful um, the way you structured the book. Thank you. Um, yeah, just just one more biographical thing. Uh, do you think that that um, this subject writing there there hasn't been a lot of writing in English about drugs in the Third Reich? I mean, there has been a, a few books, um, you know, here or there, but it, there hasn't really been very many um, dedicated monographs. Do you do you think that th- this was like the time? to write this or did it just come out, um, you know, just, just, just haphazardly? Do you, do you think that like we're prepared, there's enough historical distance from the time period for a book like this to come out and us to sort of accept, um, drug abuse in, in, uh, you know, authoritarian societies critically? I think the book could not have been written much earlier because the historical, school or or style of um, dealing with the Third Reich um, developed over time, developed over the decades, and it would have been weird if it would have started with the drug abuse, uh, because obviously it had to start with with different with different angles. Uh, we had to we had the historians had to look at had had to had to examine ways of understanding what happened and why it happened, and um, I can understand that historians in the 70s, 80s, and, and maybe even 90s would not focus on drugs because they would focus on, on different things. They would focus on economy, on ideology, on on more, quote-unquote, serious ways of explanation or of, of narrative uh, technique. And um, I think it really... Uh, I think that time was was needed to, to that distance uh, was needed. I'm, I'm a third in Germany. We say uh, third generation. 
uh, author mm-hmm. because my parents are second generation and obviously their parents are first generation, which were the active generation during that time. So maybe the second generation was not was not able to to look at at drugs because maybe they for once didn't understand really what drugs are, mm-hmm. or they would they might have thought that drugs are not a serious enough angle to explain certain things. Um, but I th- I think the time really is uh, is ripe for uh, examining that angle and. Uh, Hopefully, also examining the, using that angle on on other topics as well, not just the Third sure. Reich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Uh, some of my own work, I, I recently uh, looked at uh, drug prohibition in the United States, and it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> the historiography is all from the last ten years. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's things been written before, but you know, um, mm-hmm. people taking it seriously and taking the the um, the, the cultural history aspect of it. Is is very very recent, and I think uh, I think you're right. I think your book came out at the right time, and it, it would have been pretty hard to write it the way that you did, at least you know ten years ago, oh. which which makes it very fresh and and a very interesting read, of course. Um, so let's let's dive into the book and and just sort of talk about sure. um, why why. Hmm. Uh, so one of the first things that you talk about is in the book in the 1920s, and you talk about the drug culture of Germany in the 1920s and how that gets associated with sort of social disorder and danger and uh, ill health, but also in the mind in the Nazi mind, it gets associated with uh, anti-Semitism. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that connection and, and sort of framing mm. uh, the world of the 1920s? Well, the 1920s witnessed the first democracy on German soil. It was called the Weimar Republic. Um, Germany, coming out of a lost First World War, was a struggling um, society. The economy was quite bad. Um, there was a lot of chaos on the street. There were street fights between the, the, the extreme left, the communists, and the extreme right, the Nazis. Um, the mainstream democratic establishment was not very strong. Berlin, as this big city, the capital, um, was considered something of a crazy and unrulable town. Um, the policing was not very strong. Um, experimentation was 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 quite uh, was 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 en vogue. Uh, also, experimenting with drugs was, was quite normal back then. Um, drugs were not stigmatized. Um, they were not called poisons yet. Uh, in German, we have that word Rauschgifte, which the Nazis coined, which means inebriating poisons. In Weimar Republic, they weren't called poisons. They were just called substances. Um, and this Weimar Republic uh, was hated by the Nazis. Um, Goebbels the main propaganda uh, figure of the Nazi movement called it the uh, asphalt, 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 as I make sense, the cement, the cement society, mm-hmm. the street society. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nazis basically didn't like anything that couldn't be couldn't be put into order. At least that's what they claimed. So that the Weimar Republic, with with all its chaotic 
uh, ways of and, and different ways of experimenting with how a civil society uh, could function was uh, was 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 being uh, uh, fought against uh, by the Nazi movement, and um, they are. From early on, they said the Weimar Republic is being dominated by Jews. Um, the Jews at the time, obviously, were still an, uh, an important part of the German society. So many intellectuals were Jewish. Uh, academic, many academics were Jewish. Um, so Berlin, the Berlin life, I, I guess you could you could say that it was strongly influenced by the German Jewish uh, community, um, and the Nazis. Um, Said that this is a bad thing, and they they said that these these Jewish um, these Jewish Germans are um, bad for the German society, and they connected them quite quickly to drugs. They said there's one um, there's one propaganda sentence that comes to my mind now, speaking about the nervous Jewish character who's obviously in need of morphine to calm his. Uh, his nervous uh, mindset. Um, so the Nazis quickly um, combined uh, their um, fight against drugs with their fight against Jews. So their anti-drug policy, which then later turns into something completely different, which we will speak about later on, uh, is early on connected with their anti-Semitic policy. Um, both Jews and drugs are poison. Uh, poison that needs to be uh, extracted from the German, the healthy German uh, body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too, as um, you mentioned, it, when you're talking about the 1920s, you talk about the big, uh, what we would call Big Pharma today, uh, Merck and, and some of the other uh, German, uh, you know, um, pharmaceutical companies. And, and you mentioned this this thing that's really interesting little tidbit, and there's so many great tidbits in this book, uh, some relating to capitalism, some relating to, you know, just, just um, you know, mentalities for regarding drugs. And, and you mentioned the fact that uh, in Merck used to import lots and lots of uh, opium from China in the 20s. It wasn't in the 19, as much in the 19th century. It was really in the 20s when this mm. stuff got really big. And then you mentioned the fact that even in the 20s, uh, the Chinese were, um, you know, bootlegging labels with the Merck logo on it because Merck had the most, you know, pure um, opium or heroin. And it, it's just, it's, it's interesting um, in this book, you, you, there's this sort of prehistory of Big Pharma that sort of begins at this time. Mm. And it's all relating to in intoxicating substances. Mm. Well, this was actually an advice by Hans Moms, the great German historian. He said to me, look at where the German drug producing actually comes from. And I think it starts in um, in the early 19th century uh, when a young chemist called Saturna um, isolates the alkaloid in the poppy uh, plant, uh, which is which we now know of as morphine. So he was able to to find out that the active ingredient in the in the poppy plant, the poppy flower is is um, um, is morphine, and uh, that is kind of the um, from from then on. Um, before that, opium 
was they, they was being produced in in various uh, uh, qualities. Sometimes it was much stronger than other times. And but once Saturna was was finished with his work, um, German um, pharmacies were able to produce uh, a reliable uh, morphine product. And this uh, some of these uh, chemist shops or pharmacies. Turned then into companies. For example, the, the, the Merck company, which is a global player still today, was uh, a pharmacy in Darmstadt, and they started producing reliable pills. Uh, and um, so, basically, the, the pharmaceutical industry as we know it today, in terms of producing medicines and drugs, originated or comes from Germany. And Germany um, didn't have the same amount. Or the same quality of colonies that, for example, France had, or Great Britain had, or Belgium or Holland had, or Portugal or Spain. Germany didn't have that. It wasn't a sea power. So, while the other countries could import natural exotic stimulants uh, from overseas, which were being uh, sought after in a, in, a, in a more and more modern society, um, Germany didn't have that opportunity and had to produce their own stimulants and their own uh, medicines. So it was a, um, it was an, an, an a rewarding um, area for the German uh, companies to, because Germany always had a, had a big markets and, and so this is how it came about and um, we can see this uh, developing all the way in, into the twenties when uh, the Germans, uh, after losing the First World War, were very reluctant to sign that part of the Versailles Treaty which um, want, which was uh, which intended to stop um, or regulate um, the production of uh, opiates or of cocaine. Um, Merck had the patent for cocaine and was producing the best cocaine in the world using the annual harvest from Peru which was brought to the Hamburg Harbor completely legal and then was turned into the famous Merck cocaine. Yeah, no, that that, that was something I, I didn't know about, uh, at least the specifics of it. And it, it is amazing um, when you read about that, because today, uh, even though many pharmaceutical companies uh, have this sort of sheen of research and development and, you know, ethical and, and, and scientific and, and uh, empirical knowledge, uh, it's really interesting that so it's all based on the sort of initial sort of uh, isolation of intoxicants and 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 you know it it, it was an interesting I think fascinating uh, topic. But to get back to the book, we should we should talk about the connection between the Third Reich and and how methamphetamine becomes the drug of choice. For Blitzkrieg and 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 for the society in general, well, and, and yeah, yeah, oh yeah, please. Well, it's quite ironic that the Nazis, who started off as uh, one of the first governments in the world um, to really wage a war on drugs, um, that during that regime uh, a new drug evolves, which is methamphetamine, uh, being produced by uh, Berlin company Temmler being patented in, uh, on October 31st, 1937, and then flooding the market in 1938 and 39 and 1940 and so on. 
um, that during that, uh, while those uh, anti-drug uh, people were ruling Germany, this, this drug methamphetamine, which we now know of as a highly addictive and quite dangerous drug, becomes a t completely legal drug of choice uh, of the German uh, people in their emerging uh, performance society. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it in the book, is one of the reasons why methamphetamine was selected over benzedrine was because uh, America had the patent on it. I believe it was the Lilly Company that had the patent on it, and they had observed um, the great athletic prowess of the American uh, athletes at the 1936 Olympics, and that was why they decided to go for amphetamines, because they, they knew it was a performance-enhancing drug very, very early. Yeah, um, yeah, after the Olympics were people who were supposed to be racially inferior according to the Nazi ideology were actually stronger than the German superhumans and running faster and uh, there was there was discussion in Germany how could that happen and uh, an easy explanation was that the American athletes were using benzatrine uh, in fact there's no there's no proof that this actually took place this was a rumor mm -hmm. and uh, I've spoken to quite a few sports historians who have tried to find out whether that really is true that the American team was on benzedrine during that those Olympics and there's so far there's been no document found that actually proves this but um, the head of the Temla company um, knowing about the rumors said uh, we have to produce a better amphetamine we have to make uh, the super amphetamine which then turned out to be methamphetamine which actually is an, a, a Japanese invention. It was synthesized uh, in Tokyo for the first time uh, quite a few decades earlier, but the Japanese never turned it into a product. And Temla Company actually did turn it into a product, which they uh, labeled uh, or called Pervitine. And Pervitine came onto the market, as I said before, in, in late 37, and especially 38, it flooded the market. Mm -hmm. Um, each pervitine pill contained three milligrams of pure methamphetamine. Yeah, wow. It it's it is um, well, it, it's 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 amazing, but it also seems sort of slightly predictable when you think about the modernity and and mechanization, a sort of German idealized mechanized army trying to move as fast as possible over France. It, it becomes sort of links, you know, taking uh, amphetamines obviously makes the experience of, you know, movement over land much, much more um, probably exciting. I mean, it's it, like, can you talk about how the, the link between um, amphetamine and sort of blitzkrieg and mechanized warfare of the 20th century? Because in this book, it seems to be inextricably linked those two ideas. Yes, I mean, first, pervitine was produced by Temla for the civilian population because they thought everyone could use it. Everyone can take something to be uh, more alert on the job or to be more happy doing the housework or to be more, to be cleverer in a, in a business meetings and, uh, or, or to, to, to hairdressers would, would use it and cut more hair. I mean, it was it was basically good for everyone and then the army discovered it because there was a professor called Ranke who was responsible for performance enhancement of the German army, and he, he thought 
this is good for the civilian population. Not good, but if it, if it works effectively for the civilian population, why wouldn't it work for a soldier? And he conducted tests and he found out that it, um, one, reduces fear and two, reduces the um, need to sleep. And those two, um, those two effects uh, seemed highly uh, rewarding in, in his mind for, for, for soldiers. And it, actually they were because... Um, the strategy against France was very much dependent on the time factor. Um, Germany needed to be to cross the Ardennes Mountains within three days and three nights in order to reach the French border city of Sedan. And only if that would have happened in three days and three nights, the Germans would already be in the f would would be able to enter to invade the French heartland, while most of the French uh, and British troops uh, were still. Um, positioned in the north of Belgium. So, um, and the French and the British thought this is the Germans can never advance that fast through the Ardennes Mountains. Uh, they have to stop at night. We'll be we'll be there. We'll uh, we'll we'll destroy their advance easy. That they they never thought it would be possible to for an army, a large army, to move um, for days and nights without stopping. Uh, but methamphetamine uh, uh, distributed in uh, with uh, 35 million. Dosages, because that was the number that was uh, given out uh, just before the attack, or during the during those uh, weeks of the attack, uh, enabled the German army to do exactly that. So um, we shouldn't say that uh, methamphetamine is responsible for the German victory, the surprising German victory, but it certainly plays a key role in that victory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but but it, as as you sort of get to in the book is that these these um, advantages that the drug gives are only they're they're an illusion because because in the first year or two of the war methamphetamine is sort of linked with with German victory but then at, towards the end of the war it 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 becomes this darker and and far more um, I don't know, far, far more unsettling uh, notion that that the the beginnings with with methamphetamine sort of start to move into uh, morphine and heroin abuse. Uh, you mentioned that it, not only in the German army, but in Hitler's personal life himself. I mean, you know, uh, towards the ends of the book, it seems like Hitler's doctor is is propping him up with with every kind of drug imaginable. I mean, it's a big part of your book, and I, I want you to talk about my, Dr. Morell and, and this sort of quacks science that's going on as well. Well, we have to distinguish very clearly between the Army's use of methamphetamine, which stayed methamphetamine. Um, they didn't use any other drugs on a, on a mass scale except methamphetamine. Um, but later on in the war against Russia, methamphetamine just didn't work anymore. It was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good drug for a short war, but not for a prolonged war. I spoke to a medical officer, a uh, very old gentleman now, who gave out heavy teens still in Stalingrad, and he said he just, it, it just didn't help anymore because the war against Russia was, uh, was lasting for uh, over three years. Um, so the methamphetamine proved uh, not so successful towards the end of the German war effort. Um, Hitler's drug taking is a completely different chapter, I suppose, or part uh, or, or aspect of the, of the whole story. 
and I dedicate the third part of my book to um, Hitler's uh, incredible drug career. Um, and this is quite surprising because the Nazi propaganda um, not only said that all drugs are bad and the German, the, the, the national, national socialist German obviously doesn't take any drugs, um, uh, but is a, is, is, a, is a good fellow that uh, would not take uh, s such a bad thing. Uh, it, it, is, it especially stressed that fact uh, on, on Hitler himself. Hitler was always portrayed as uh, that leader, that clean leader who does nothing else than work for his people. And uh, he has no private life. He's not married. He doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't eat meat. Um, so Hitler was this kind of this kind of health, health leader in a way. Um, and in fact, most of these claims are true until 1941. Um, but uh, the problem starts earlier on in 1936 when Hitler meets uh, a doctor called Theo Morel, um, a Berlin doctor who specializes in giving vitamin shots and, uh, uh, and has a, a good uh, practice here in, in, in Berlin um, treating uh, celebrities um, with his vitamin shots. And um, Hitler also liked these vitamin shots, and he believed that he wouldn't, wouldn't ever get ill again. He would never have a cold. Um, um, and he, would, he, he appointed Morel as his personal physician, and the, the two men uh, spent every day together, and uh, Morel gave Hitler one to two injections a day. The first five years, truly mostly with these vitamins that kept Hitler healthy and happy. Um, but then in 1941, in the fall, when the war against Russia uh, turns uh, difficult for Germany, Hitler becomes ill for the first time. Um, he has a, a, the so-called Russian fever. He's in bed. He can't attend the military briefing. And he says, says to Morel, give me something stronger than vitamins. I have to go. I have to speak to the generals. I can't let them make their own decisions. And Morel gives him for the first time an opiate, uh, dolantine, and uh, also a hormone, hormone injection, kind of a, a doping, a typical doping steroid uh, injection. And it works on Hitler. And Hitler um, likes that feeling of being sick in bed, not able to move, uh, and, and getting an, a strong injection and being able to get up an hour later and, and tell his generals what's supposed to be going on. So... This is kind of a turning point, and um, Hitler more and more then asks for stronger injections. He's not happy anymore with just vitamins. Um, and Morel, who still gives Hitler his daily one or two injections, changes what he actually gives Hitler. And um, this um, gets more and more severe or intense or insane until from 19, summer 1943 on, he gives more and more opiates intravenously, and uh, in the second half of 1944, uh, when the war really gets into its decisive end phase, uh, Hitler takes um, so many opiates on a, on a sometimes two-day um, interval that uh, we have to call this. Uh, we have to we have to consider that he might uh, that we might be uh, able to call him a junkie in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. In, in your book, you have uh, some great. Uh, visual sources where you, you show Dr. Morell's, um, uh, you know, his, his, his memos for, for patient A, as, as Hitler is known, um, and uh, it, every other day, it, and, and towards the end of the war, more than that even, um, 
and and you sort of talk about how um, you know there there's been a lot of talk about Hitler having um, uh, Parkinson's disease at the ends of his life, but you say that it's possible that he might have just merely been in withdrawal or or in some sort of medicated state that it at least exacerbated these symptoms. Yeah, I don't think that. I mean, it's obvious that his health deteriorated, and uh, I don't think it's. I think it's too easy to just call it Parkinson's because there's no proof that it was actually Parkinson's, but there's proof that he took uh, huge amounts uh, of very hard drugs um, uh, in a very um, in a way that that cannot be healthy because he takes very different very different drugs with very different effects. Uh, he mixes them, and, and Morel had no clue of how these uh, very potent substances that he administered Hitler, over 80 substances that uh, he shot into Hitler's veins, how they would interact. So it's no surprise that um, Hitler, Hitler's health uh, uh, really deteriorates uh, towards the end of the war. And um, we can also see that starting January 1st, 1945, um, when Hitler moves into that last phase of uh, hiding or, or living in the bunker in Berlin, in the center of Berlin, um, suddenly these drugs stop. And um, that's when um, heavy withdrawal symptoms have to set in. And if we look at Hitler's uh, physical behavior, the tremor, um, the way he looks, the way he behaves, I think it's, um, it's more than likely that he was suffering from cold turkey. Then again, mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't say he, he he that he didn't have Parkinson's. He might have had Parkinson's on top of that. I mean, he he was certainly a physical and mental wreck in the end. Well, it's interesting also that Morel's fortunes go with Hitler's fortunes as well. I mean, at a certain point, they become linked as well. You talk about how Morel's wife was very hesitant about getting involved with the top leadership of the Third Reich because she was afraid for his life and she was afraid for her life and uh, he seemed like he was tempted to, you know, live this grander lifestyle. You talk about at one point where Morel is offered uh, a house in Berlin in a very fashionable neighborhood that he would never have been able to afford if he had just been a, a regular doctor. Yeah, Morel was a typical opportunist in a way or I mean, maybe it's even understandable how he reacted because when he was offered the job in '36 by Hitler to become personal physician, this was like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, Hitler was revered by the German people. Um, there was no war yet. Um, he was a very powerful uh, leader. And uh, so for Morel, it was a huge career jump. Um, his wife said, we don't need that. We have a, we ha- You have a, a, a good... Uh, um, doctor's office here in Berlin, why, why do you do that? We won't spend much time together anymore, which was true because Hitler really tied Morel onto him. They became like a symbiotic uh, pair and um, in fact there's no one that spent more time with Hitler than uh, Morel which is, which is another fact that historians have overlooked uh, because they have in a way also overlooked Morel for all this time and, and Morel had this tremendous impact on Hitler because they spent every day together and um, they exchanged, they had quite an intense exchange through these uh, through these syringes, through these injections. 
Mm-hmm. So Morel really is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating uh, character that uh, that 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 gives us uh, a very interesting look at the inner into the inner rooms of this uh, of this regime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting too that as as the uh, the Third Reich waxes, Morel's own pharmaceutical and medical empire sort of waxes as well. You talk about how uh, Morel needed for his hormone injections, he needed like um, basically access to animal parts. Like he takes over. Um, like a American built slaughterhouse in the Ukraine and he needs it to take all these um you know uh you know bits of, of animal organs or whatever to get hormones and stuff. And there's it's a very ghoulish aspect to it as well. To make this sort of quack medicine work, he needs he needs these bodies, which I thought was very very disturbing. Yeah, this is a chapter that's called Slaughterhouse Ukraine, and I think it's one of the darkest uh, chapters in the book. Uh, but um, it's also a very interesting one because um, we can really see how Morel thrives in his position and how he uses his position as the personal physician of the so-called Führer um, to attain the monopoly on all the slaughtered animals on, in all of the uh, abattoirs in the Ukraine, um, taking all the organs, uh, the, the 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 valuable organs of these uh, slaughtered animals uh, out and and ship them in army trains uh, back to his uh, factory um, in uh, occupied um, Czechoslovakia, where he then produces um, his uh, hormone concoctions, uh, his liver. Uh, his liver juice that was then supplied to the German army, and uh, I mean, he he became quite a rich man, um, um, which was always his goal. I mean, he uh, mm. he 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 saw, he looked around, and he saw that everyone being close to Hitler really profits from this regime and really gets rich and powerful. So he wanted to do the same, and he found a way by by constructing this kind of one-man pharmaceutical empire. Um, it's, it's, it's quite a crazy and fascinating story, actually. Mm, yeah, no, it's, it's one of the, the more interesting aspects of, of the book, for sure. Um, yeah, no, uh, if, just, just switching gears for a moment, like, there, there's, a, there's so many good little um, bits in this book I really enjoyed um, from the... The, the visual sources in the book are fantastic. There, there are so many ones that are amazing, and, and uh, one of the ones that, that is, is almost most haunting uh, is uh, the uh, Perbitin chocolate. So there's this, uh, I forget what page it's on, but there's a, a photograph of a German woman getting chocolates from you know her lover or her, or her children or whatever, and they're just filled with methamphetamine. And it's interesting, it hits the gender uh, aspect as well, the sort of gendered a- aspect of of you know a woman's role, but also it it, it is there's something like they all seem so okay with it, you know, or or at least the marketing seems like very okay with it. Mm. Um, what? How did you end up like putting the visual sources you decided in 
into the book itself? Because you pick so many great ones. Um, we're actually sort of fortunate that there are so many visual sources in the text. Mm. Well, I mean, I did a very long research and uh, I found many interesting uh, visual visual pieces, for example, that ad for that Hildebrand chocolate, that was the brand mm-hmm. name. Uh, the slogan was, oh, Hildebrand chocolate's always a delight. And uh, I mean, mm-hmm. for, just from that picture you see from that German Fräulein holding in her manicured fingers uh, a piece of chocolate which is laced with 13 milligrams of methamphetamine it just tells a lot and it just gives you a sense of how normal uh, it was to use methamphetamine in, the, in, that, in that society um, so I, I think for me it was very important to include uh, those images and the books being um, translated currently into 26 languages and unfortunately some uh, foreign editions uh, have decided not to uh, reprint those visual uh, th- those 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 visuals, uh, but Blitz, the, the American version, does uh, show all the the visual material that uh, I've selected, and I think it really adds um, it really adds to to the book. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if that yeah. answers your question. Yeah, no, it, no, it does. I I, I just. I felt that we were fortunate to have so many rich uh, visual sources. Um, just getting towards the end of the book, I, I, I want to get um, uh, this this uh, on here as well. You talk about the use of child soldiers and the Kriegsmarine, yeah. and you mention two really interesting things. Uh, that the Kriegsmarine's hands were not completely clean, which is, a, I guess, a... Uh, semi-mythologized history about the German Navy, but also the fact that uh, the Germans used child soldiers. And in, in, I think in our minds, in, in contemporary in our contemporary world, we, we sort of confine child soldiers as as maybe something to the distant past or, or some you know remote part of of uh, Asia or Africa or some insurgency or something. But uh, there's a point in in this book where. Uh, the Kriegsmarine decided it's, it's a good idea to pump these children full of methamphetamine and then send them out on suicide submarines. Can you talk a little bit about that chapter and how, how you get the research for that done and, and uh, how that worked? Um, the, the sea battle against um, the West was basically lost for the German Navy. All their big submarines had been sunk. and So the, the last straw of hope for them was to construct mini submarines which would um, be driven by one or two uh, soldiers and the idea was that they would um, approach the big British and American ships um, uh, unseen, undetected by uh, radar and then send the torpedo and and sink them. Um, But in order to do that, uh, these mini submarines had to uh, be uh, in action for uh, that was calculated about five days and five nights without stopping and since uh, often it was they were only manned by one person um, it was considered impossible for anyone to stay awake that long and if you fell asleep in those things uh, you might uh, drown or it wasn't wasn't possible to to it, it just didn't work if you, if you would sleep um, so they were looking for drugs that would keep these um, very young soldiers um, um, awake for this uh, long time and um, pervitine only worked for two days and two nights that was kind of 
the, the average, what it would keep you awake. Um, so they were looking for new drugs, actually. They were looking for um, a wonder drug. Um, they were testing different drug combinations. They would uh, make pills laced with cocaine, methamphetamine, and oikodal, Hitler's favorite opiate. Put all of these three together to form a drug which was called D9, uh, drug 9. Now that was uh, the most potent of all. Uh, but then they, they found that these young soldiers went completely... Uh, mad when they took this, these strong drugs and then were alone uh, riding through the, the depth of the ocean. Just uh, It just shows you um, how desperate the German war effort in the end had become because this is the development of 1944 and 1945. And a very dark and uh, aspect of that hunt for the wonder drug uh, was that they used the navy used they basically the navy hired um um a uh um a group of prisoners of the concentration camp of Sachsenhausen which is the concentration camp north of berlin um they they basically paid the ss that they could use uh, these uh, these prisoners in in that concentration camp a group of prisoners to test uh, their new drug combinations and uh, in order to find out which is the most potent uh, of these new uh, types of wonder drugs they were trying to develop. So um, the Navy, which after the war always said, we were not really the bad guys, the SS, were, the SS was bad, and, uh, but we, were, we had our clean uniforms, we were just fighting on, in the oceans, this was a different... It's kind of a myth that the German Navy was uh, the only uh, army part that uh, didn't commit war crimes. Uh, I, I discover in, in Blitz that this is certainly not true um, because they actually um, abused concentration camp inmates in order to test their new drug combinations for their insane missions to turn the war effort uh, in the seas around. Um, and this uh, this, is a, this is an important part of, of of Blitzed, and I researched this together with an expert from the current German army, uh, who's an expert on that specific topic, and I studied the archives in the concentration camp of Sachsenhausen, where all this uh, material is still being um, present and archived. And when I presented that to Hans Mommsen, the leading German historian on National Socialism, who basically knows everything about National Socialism, he said, this is, he's never heard of this before. Um, so we can see that even historians who are knowledgeable, who should be knowledgeable about all aspects, are absolutely not knowledgeable about all aspects because it's simply impossible to know everything. Um, and, and so also this chapter uh, of, uh, of very sinister uh, drug abuse by the German Navy in the concentration camp uh, close to Berlin had not properly been uh, exposed uh, or examined before. Mm -hmm. um, just, just one more thing I want to talk about is uh, ersatz and, and the fact that, and, and you mentioned this in the book, that uh, methadone, which is, as we know, commonly prescribed uh, for those uh, addicted to heroin uh, in the United States and, I, and Europe, I presume as well, uh, was developed by uh, IG Farben as a substitute for, me uh, for morphine because they were afraid that they would run out of morphine for, um, you know, pain control for uh, injured soldiers. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about how you found that out? Because I, I thought that was a really interesting part of the book as well. Well, there was a point in the war where Germany was cut off from the opium fields of uh, Morocco, but especially also of Afghanistan. And uh, there was Goering was afraid, Goering being a morphine addict himself, was afraid that there would be a time when um, there wouldn't be enough natural um, morphine available. So he was... Um, he was uh, initiating this project to develop a um, completely synthesized painkiller, which uh, actually was developed. It was, it was somehow too late in the war effort to mass produce it, and then which we, which is the methadone that we know today. And then when America um, invaded Nazi Germany. Um, they took that patent as a war booty and um, then were able to um, mass-produce uh, methadone as we know it today. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Um, well, uh, Norman, what are you working on now? Are you working on another history or are you going back to uh, writing novels or what are you doing now? Well, um, right after I finished Blitzed, I took up uh, an, a project, a novel that I started 10 years ago, which is set in the 18th century um, in a huge swamp area east of Berlin where King Frederick the Great um, um, decides to drain that very swamp and turn it into farmland. Um, so it is a, this is a historical uh, novel, a, a murder mystery, because... Uh, in fact, uh, the most important engineer of that project um, died of mysterious causes. Uh, and in my novel, I examine uh, through a detective, an, an early form of a detective, uh, why this man uh, got killed. And uh, so I, I, it's about uh, resistance against uh, this, this land reform project of King Frederick. It's a very different, um, very different project, but still... Uh, meticulously uh, researched, I would say. I would hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know. it comes uh, out actually in the fall in Germany uh, under the title of The Equation of Life and hopefully then will also come out uh, in other languages, um, hopefully 2018. Okay, Norman. Well, um, I think we've taken a little uh, enough of your time up. Um, no problem. Thanks for talking with me. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. I'm very happy to speak about blitz with you.